Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everyone, how's it going? How's every, how's everybody's Thursday? Almost done with the week. Great, great, great. Feels good to be done with the week. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. I got a mic hey. coming out of my head. Did you hear that? It was like a voice. Creepy. Uh, anyway, <laughs> creepy things been happening all day. Anyway, I'm the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We are 45 strong up and down the state of California. So that means if you have a paranormal need or think you do, you can get a hold of us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Twitch, and Instagram. And I'll give you those addresses shortly. Okay? Uh, and then if we can't get to you right away because California is a big state, we do have... In fact, let me move this a little bit here. This thing's clicking. I don't like clicking. We do have uh, psychics and mediums on staff that can help you. And, uh, you know, before we get out there. Tonight's guest, uh, Brooks Agnew, he uh, is going to be coming via phone last minute. He's, he's on the road right now. And so his internet at the hotel isn't very fast. So we're going to go on the phone here. So that's cool. You know, we can do that. I know the last time I did the phone, we had a little feedback going on. So hopefully if that happens again today, I'm going to have to figure out something because since I reconfigured my studio, you know, that might be the issue. So maybe I should put a barricade or something up this way so I don't get it. But uh, yeah, so we're going to see how that goes tonight. But anyway, I want to talk to this about, because I'm about to call him. Um, I loved the movie Journey to the Center of the Earth. Not the not the latest one with Brendan Fraser. I like Brendan Fraser. The view's good. I like the original one with Pat Boone and all them. I really, really liked it to the point that I always had this dream, on, you know, on my bucket list of spending the night in a cave. And I know maybe someday somebody will help me do that at the Grand Canyon Caverns because they, they allow, there's a hotel there now and they allow people overnights there. That would be so cool to be able to do that. But that movie did it for me. I always dreamed of digging a hole. You know how they always say you dig the China. I always had this dream of digging this, this big hole and then crawling through stuff to uh, get to the center of the earth. So that's what we're going to talk to tonight with Brooks. And I'm really, I'm really excited to hear what he has to say about that. Okay. So as you're watching the show, if you like what you hear, please be sure to hit that happy button. Show me some love, you know, happy faces, hearts. We love that. Whether you're on YouTube or Facebook, please do that. And if you haven't followed already on either of those pages, please be sure to do that. Uh, I've got over 542 videos sitting over there and there's just a little bit of something for everybody. Okay. So uh, please be sure to do that. And I'll have some extra information towards the end of the show about other things and, and some updates, okay? Just bear in mind that I've been working in, in the big studio all day, shooting, shooting stuff for TikTok and, uh, and Facebook. I've only had a cup of hot cocoa all day. So I've been kind of munching on uh, my chocolates from Aaron Muner. Can't you keep going here? So <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. I don't know if it's the internet slow today or what, but... But TikTok's been real slow for me to get my uh, videos up. And Facebook's been really slow for me to get the videos up. So I don't know what's going on. But anyway, on a happier note, let's call Brooks and get this show on the road. Working. 
Star Trek computer, right? Call. All right, let me get him on speakerphone. And away we go, and let's hope we don't get any feedback here. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great. Good to hear from you. So, so what have you been up to? Oh my gosh. Where do I start? Alphabetical order? Let's see. <laughs> I have four companies that I run, so I, I've been very busy. Consultants going well, construction's going well, book sales are going well, and uh, uh, I'm now starting back up my, my conference work because uh, all the conferences were shut down for two years, so they're just now starting back up, and I'm in Los Angeles speaking for two days in one year. You are busy. You know, I have to tell you, the first time you were ever on, because you've been on twice already, the first time you were ever on, you had warned me about YouTube. <laughs> you know? Yeah. The second show we did, I got a warning. And I laughed. Yeah. You know, and that was the that's the one we did with the, with the Anunnaki. Somebody out wow. there just didn't appreciate our views on the, on the, you know, on that. So I got to, yeah, it's just kind of funny. Because you had warned me. I got banned for life because of my Apollo Moon episode really yeah hollow moon is what did me in 21 years of content they deleted oh yeah and you know what's funny about it is that i pointed out that you had been on other shows talking about the same thing that nobody cared right away it came back as bad you know here's your warning have a nice day i was like okay whatever but i thought it was funny it was ironic because i remember when you came on the first time you said you know you're you're probably going to get in trouble for this (laughs) you know (laughs) <laughs> well, let's see if we can do it again. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I was just telling everybody how growing up, and I, this is going to give away my age, um, I loved the movie Journey to the Center of the Earth with Pat Boone. That was my thing. Always wanted to camp in a cave, you know, and do all that stuff. And I'm really excited to talk to you about finding ways to get to the center of the earth tonight. Mm, okay. And I'm real excited about that. So give me some background on how you got into like looking into that stuff. Can't be glad to. Uh, my co-author and I were writing the first uh, volume in the Ark of Millions of Years series. It turned out to be a four-book series. Mm-hmm. Uh, people really liked it. Uh, we and, and I was doing some research. I came across a book called Our Hollow Earth. And I read it as part of my research, and I went, eh, you know, that's amusing. And I set it aside, put it on the shelf, and didn't look at it again for a while. And then in uh, 2006, uh, NASA had a mission called the L-Cross mission. And the L-Cross mission was a, uh, a flying spectrometer. So what it did is it, it analyzed particles in space. And uh, they had a mission to... They were going to finish off the mission by uh, launching the engine part of the craft. They were going to break it in two, drop mm-hmm. the engine part of the craft onto the moon, into a crater. And when it hit the moon at about uh, 6,000 miles an hour, it left a, you know, a big crater and it made a big plume of dust. Mm-hmm. And that dust, the spectrometer side of the ship, flew through that dust, analyzed it, and sent the analysis to Earth. At the same time, we were watching that plume from Earth with the telescope, and we thought we could get spectrographic information from it from the telescope, 
or we couldn't. It was too far away, too oblique of an angle. But the information that we got from the Air Cross mission really uh, excited everybody because it uh, let us know that there was helium-3 on the moon. So that got us into looking into cosmic radiation from the sun. Mm-hmm. And that led us to the next mission, which was called the Themis probe. And the reason they did the Themis probe is while they were doing this mission, they took a couple pictures of Earth while they were in space. And what showed up was not what they expected. They saw auroras over both poles at the same time. And they always had just taken for granted that it was this cosmic radiation, the same thing that loaded up the moon, was also loading up the Earth, but it only struck one side of the Earth at a time, depending on whether it was winter or summer, uh, you know, summer weather, because we're tilted 23 degrees on our axis. Right. And so they hurried and put together the Themis probe, and they launched it to try to see if they could discover the source of the auroras, because they're not supposed to be over both poles, just one pole at a time. So they launched the Themis probe and got into position, kind of like a Jacob's Ladder, from a low to high altitude. There were five satellites, and they stacked one on top of the other going out into space. Mm -hmm. And they turned the mission on, and lo and behold, in between satellites three and four, this like interdimensional explosion went off. They call it a cosmic bullet. Mm -hmm. Right out of mid-space, just out of nothing. And when it exploded, of course, the shockwave went out into space, but it also went down to Earth. And when it got to Earth, the upper atmosphere burst into an aurora. So they said, oh, well, that's it. That's the source of the auroras. It's a cosmic bullet. Well, all this started to weigh on me and this book, Our Hollow Earth, mm-hmm. because I thought, wait a minute, what if, what if the source of energy for the auroras is not coming from space at all. What if it's coming from inside the Earth? Well, NASA started thinking about it the same way, and that got me excited. And then, about a year and a half later, Dr. Y Sessions in Washington University mm-hmm. commissions his grad students, which he probably got to do it for just like pizza or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went through 600,000 seismograms. These are these are uh, squiggly lines that are made when we have an earthquake. Sure. And the seismograms are just printouts. They're not uh, individual. Uh, they're not correlated. So he took his grad students and he correlated those 600,000 files. And when he did, what they discovered was that there was an ocean underneath the crust of the Atlantic Ocean that was as big as the Arctic Ocean. Wow. And the reason that they and the reason they said it was an ocean is because they could see the waves crashing on a shore inside the earth. So I, I gotta tell you I, I I started taking more and more looks at it and I thought, well maybe maybe it, it is hollow and maybe there are openings in the crust that blend these two oceans together because there was another, uh, this is an oceanographic piece of data that popped up. Right. Uh, Scripps is a uh, oceanography college and every five years they go to Malaysia and they sample 
rays, like sing rays, manta rays, mm -hmm. like that. Because as it turns out, sting rays are like ocean tree frogs. So like if you go to the rainforest and look at tree frogs, they're very sensitive to pollution. Mm -hmm. So if there's pollution in the air, tree frogs grow like six legs and three eyes and all that stuff, and they, and they mutate. Well, rays do the same thing in the ocean. So that's what Scripps College does. They get a grant. They get some students. They go get sunburned for six weeks and, and sample rays. Normally, they get about 150 to 200 mutations and different species of rays. But in 2008, I'm sorry, yeah, 2008, uh, they had, they found 1,500 wow. species, new species of rays. And these were, some of them were crazy things that we haven't seen, but we've seen fossils that are like mm -hmm. a million years old. But these were alive. And it led us to believe that these fully mature marine animals were coming from somewhere. And it didn't take very much of a 30,000-foot view to realize that these things were coming down the Gulf Stream from the Arctic. So it led us to believe that maybe there's an opening in the crust, and it happened that there was a big opening in the ice that year, mm -hmm. and that maybe these sea animals are swimming up from the inner ocean to our outer ocean, and then being drugged with the Gulf Stream down to Malaysia and getting netted. So I said, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm in but I need more information. I'm going to find out how many expeditions have been made up to the Arctic Circle to look for this opening. Turned out, there weren't any. Nobody had ever done it. So I joined an expedition out of Salt Lake City to just be a contributing scientist, because I know stuff, and get on the boat and go and see for myself. Well, the expedition leader died that year, suddenly, like just got rapid onset brain cancer and died. So the board elected me to be the expedition leader in 2009, and I have been the leader ever since. Wow. So we've been trying to, the most practical way to do this is on a Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker mm -hmm. out, of, out of Murmansk, which is north of St. Petersburg. Uh, it's actually a resort town, but these nuclear-powered icebreakers are are the most powerful in the world, and they're the only ones that can make this kind of venture mm -hmm. uh, up around, um, you know, above the 86 parallel. So it'd be like close to 87, 88, mm -hmm. way up there. And so we started uh, trying to raise money to uh, charter that boat, put a hard scientist on it, and let's go see. How does one prepare for a trip like that? That's a good question. Uh, first of all, we wanted to have all of the science represented. So we had oceanographers, we had people who were experts in the, in the Earth's magnetic field, which I, I come by that honest because my ancestor, Sir James Ross, was the original discoverer of the North Magnetic Pole. Uh, also, uh, we had to get with a, a probe builder. They have a probe that's good for 500 meters. So we go down 500 meters, but we're mm -hmm. talking about 4,000 meters. Mm -hmm. So this probe has to be modified to be able to go down that deep and get a sample and come back. And then also we want to invite Dr. Y sessions to send some of his students because, you know, he's the one that kind of cracked this whole thing open for us. Mm -hmm. And then we have invited NASA to participate. They have an earth observing 
division at NASA, and they're interested. And then we got satellite access so that we can take live streaming from the ship, bounce it up to the satellite, and drop it down to Europe and the U.S. so we can do pay-per-view live, so people nice. can actually follow us like a like a North Pole expedition reality show. Right. That is cool. Very cool. So it's a lot of preparation uh, to charter the boat and make this mission happen. We need to break $3.5 million. And if we can break that, I think we can raise the rest of it and make it happen. This would be the most expensive, most daring expedition ever done on Earth. So when you go to people and ask them, you know, and, or, or do the proposal to them about this, how do you explain what you're doing? You know, or where you're, where you're going, or, or what you're, what you're going to do once you get there. Well, we narrowed it down to ten thousand square miles, so that's roughly a hundred miles by a hundred miles. That's where we think this opening is in the press. We have a fifteen-day window to get up there, get through the ice, and make our surveys and narrow this thing down. Now, probably, highly likely, all we're going to see is whales and ice. Mm -hmm. But we are going to get some information. We are going to get some data back. And I think that enough people will watch it that we'll actually break even or maybe not lose too much money. <laughs> and then we can uh, do it again in uh, a couple of years and, and try to get even closer. But if we find the opening, uh, then it changes, it changes everything we know right. about how planetary core geology works. And I got to tell you, you know, over the years, I've talked to a lot of people, perhaps a million people about this, over 100,000 live, and way more than that on the radio, maybe 20 million people live on the radio. I have never seen anything, any project of any kind that has more passion behind it. People are so, like, like, believers like faithful mm -hmm. believers that the earth is hollow and i really feel uh, quite dedicated because of their passion how far down you think that you it's going to have to go well we got to go four thousand meters okay because that will get us to the bottom of the sea uh, and if we find the opening i i i think that the opening will be substantial mm -hmm. maybe i don't know a thousand feet across or 500 feet across i don't know and it's certainly not going to be straight you know like a tunnel right but but you know there'll be fossils there'll be different uh, uh ocean chemistry there'll be different biology uh there'll be different crystallinity of the ice it will be it will be an eye-opener as to how this planet works and how much water is actually on the inside of our planet do you think, well, you know what I find interesting in the, in the thought of doing this is that, like those caves in South America that have forests in them, you know, and have trees and everything in there. So, I mean, you may find a whole other world down there. Well, I, I don't think we're going to go in it, but because uh, we're going to be right. you know, 4,000 4, meters up. Right, right, surface. right. And I don't think anybody even expects us to sail a Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker into the, into the, into the right. middle of the earth. Right. <laughs> but... Finding the opening would be would be really remarkable. I don't think there's an opening up on the ground like mm -hmm. you could take a you know an SUV or something into. I don't think that. It, at least I haven't seen any evidence of that. If this exists, 
it's going to be very close to the polls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you t you talk about mapping and trying to figure out where this where this opening that, that you know that you want to go into. Was it very difficult trying to find that? Well, yes, uh, we had to use ancient maritime, well, medieval maritime records, and even I, I interviewed a couple of uh, navigators in the Navy, the modern Navy, mm -hmm. and I asked them if they've ever heard of anything called the Oceanic Depression. Sure. And they said, yes, they have. This is, it's, it's well recorded in this area where ships, because in those days, ships used to sail parallel to one another. Right. Within eyesight of one another. But not too close, because they didn't want to run into each other in the fog, but mm -hmm. they wanted to protect each other from, you know, pirates and stuff like that. So what would happen is, uh, uh, for a period of time, one ship would disappear from view from the other ship. And then mm -hmm. the next day, it would sail up back up into view, even though they hadn't changed course. Right. And the Navy... These Navy guys that I talked to, I talked to a commander and I talked to a, I talked to a midshipman, and he, both of them, told me the same thing. They believe these are areas where the gravity of the Earth is is more intense, and so it pulls the ocean down lower. Mm -hmm. And both of them say the same thing. And I said, well, can you consider something else that maybe there's these areas are surrounded by areas of higher gravity, and it's actually an area of lower gravity. Hmm. And what's happening is the, the gravity of the Earth is actually pulling the water away from this area. And they said, you know, that that actually might make sense. So we think, and we have some instrumentation that we think we can, we can measure this oceanic compression if it's not mm -hmm. too shallow. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's something like three or 400 feet, we can definitely measure it. If it's something like six inches, we're probably not going to be able to measure it. Right, right. When you talk about this, it reminds me of that TV show, Drain the Ocean, right? Because people don't realize what the what the bottom of the ocean actually looks like. Oh, heavens no. No, no, especially in this area. I mean, we're fairly shallow, like a couple hundred feet. Yeah. We can use side scan sonar, and we can even dive it. You can see it in some areas of mm -hmm. the ocean. But we're talking about two miles deep. Wow. It's, it's, nothing's ever been down there. Nothing's mm -hmm. ever, ever been in this area of the ocean. It's not as deep as the trench. The trench, 23,000 feet. Right. But, but we are talking, you know, pretty darn close. 4,000 meters is about, uh, you know, pretty close to 15,000 feet deep. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So, how much funding did, did did you say you figured you needed? It's going to take three point five million just to get the boat and get the scientists on it. Okay. Wow. Okay. Well, I hope I hope it works out. I really do. That that'd be something I watch. I pay per view that. <laughs> well, what it really takes is if we get like we won the Genes of Galileo contest in two thousand seven with this project, mm -hmm. but we only won ten thousand dollars. Right. And it helped. It did help. We were able to, to produce a pilot film, and, you know, we, we were on the radio and on TV. We were on Discovery Channel and History Channel and Matt Geo. We got good exposure. But in those days, there really, there really wasn't a method for, you know, having people 
donate a dollar to something like this. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't until like 2010, 2011, 2012, things like PayPal came along. Right. You know, and then, of course, I was with PayPal for a long time, over two decades. <laughs> and one day they just called me up and said, that's it. You're banned for life and we're taking all your money. And they did. Wow. So, and I wasn't the only one. They did thousands and thousands of people that way. My question here, too, you talk about uh, utilizing uh, Russian technology for this. What? Why is that as opposed to U.S. technology? The U.S. doesn't have a nuclear-powered icebreaker. Okay, okay. Makes perfect sense. Of course, of course. Have you ever been on a sub like that before or, or anything like that? It's, a, it's an icebreaker. Not right, a it's above. I just realized what I said. I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, in 20... <laughs> <laughs> In 2020, it's been that kind of had, day. Let's go ahead. In 2020, we had, I had put the money in for a dry run, so I put all the money in myself, and we, our crew, was going to fly to Moscow, and then we were going to go to Saint Petersburg and then to Murmansk. We were going to get on the ship, take a bunch of B-roll on the ship, and interview a bunch of people. And that would get people excited about the project. Mm-hmm. And they were going from there to Zurich and then from there to Pisa, Italy, because that's where the, the last uh, uh, LIGO, the laser interferometer gravitation wave observatory was. And I wanted to see that, the last one on, mm-hmm. on the Earth that I would have seen. Mm-hmm. And, of course, somebody made a phone call, shut the whole damn world down, and we lost all our money. Yeah. So we haven't had a chance to try it again. And to tell you the truth, it's pretty hard to find Russian dressing, let alone make your trip to Moscow right now. Right. Now, knowing what you know about this, what do you think is, it will be like you know, when the probe goes down to do whatever investigating it does? You think it's going to be, um, like, like they say, the Earth's core, you know, the further you get, the more the hotter it gets. So you think you're going to find heat down there? What do you think, what do you think is going to happen? No, I don't think so. When you get down... Uh, to the, to the crust of the earth under the ocean, I think it's going to be pretty darn cold. But I, I there is some uh, good research that's been done on the core of the earth. I'm glad you brought that up. Because there are two labs, and Carnegie Science actually pioneered this technique because the Japanese were measuring a, a set of frequencies coming off the core of the earth. They had device some transducers that were listening to the core of the earth and they got these two frequencies and they couldn't explain it we knew one of them was iron but it was a different state of iron than we're used to seeing but we knew it was iron and the other one we, we did not uh, recognize so carnegie science put this experiment together and they built what's called the diamond anvil these are industrial diamonds that are uh, artificially made and they put a crucible in between these two diamonds, and then they crush them with a hydraulic ram, trying to duplicate what they think are the pressures on the inside of the earth. And then they shot a laser through the diamond into the crucible and heated it up to what they expect the core of the earth is. Mm-hmm. And at that temperature, the iron that they put in the crucible was matching the frequency of the core. So now we know that the core of the Earth is actually one solid iron 
crystal wow. at about 6,000 degrees C, which is about the same temperature as the surface of the sun. Not mm -hmm. the corona, but the surface. Wow. The other frequency was, was evading us for a while. And then uh, they ran some experiments with different infusion gases. And the one gas that gave them the right signal was xenon. And, and it solved a big, uh, a big problem that we have analyzing the atmosphere. Because about 90% of the xenon is missing. Once, it, once you get free of the ocean, there's the xenon in the atmosphere is not there. And we never knew where it went. But now we know. It's locked in the iron crystal of the core. The core of the Earth is actually an iron xenon matrix. This is just so fascinating to me. You know, I that, know, that I you, know. It's, like, it's really hard science. People kind of, their eyes glaze over. But this is really fascinating because it, it, it calls into question the idea that we are traveling through space on a molten ball and living on tectonic plates at the surface. That's what, that's what we learn in school. Right. But now we have evidence that says, you know what, that might not be true. And what if Earth is hollow? What if there's a space between the core and the crust? Mm -hmm. And that's what makes our magnetic field. And that's what sets us in this very peculiar orbit around our sun. We're not supposed to be here. Our, the size of our Earth and the density of our Earth, we're supposed to be somewhere else, another orbit. But mm -hmm. we're in this one. And we've always wondered why. Why are we in this one? We're missing a whole bunch of matter if we're in this orbit. And it's because maybe there's a void between the core and the crest. It is, it's, it's just incredible. And going back on, you know, what, what we learned in school, I can remember when I was very young and I had these uh, science encyclopedias. And now everything in them is no no good anymore because everything's changed so much. It's crazy. Yeah, kids this science and then mm -hmm. those kids became scientists and they started questioning that which is what science is all about right that that brought us here that brought us to where we are so and in i guess anciently science and religion were were one they were together mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then i guess i don't really know why but they got separated religion went one way and science went another way right Right. So when you propose this thing, you know, this this project to people, I mean, it, you're right. You know, the, the, the eyes glaze over all this. But when you're all proposing this thing, how how do you present this to people to try and get funding and stuff? <laughs> well, I I use really good graphics when I do the live, <laughs> and it gets people excited about it because you're bringing in, you're bringing in space, you're bringing in oceanography, you're bringing in electromagnetism. You're bringing in uh, ancient planetary core geology, and it starts to get people excited because, you know, individual scientists and individual scientists, they don't typically talk to one another. Like geologists, they don't talk to archaeologists, and archaeologists, they don't talk to astronomers, mm -hmm. but I talk to all of them. So I pull all their ideas together and make a cohesive thesis and that's where people get excited 
Well, I would think, you know, like you say, they don't talk to each other. I would think that by pulling it all together, you can compare notes and everything and put, like you say, put it together, you know, cohesively. I don't understand why science doesn't talk to each other. You know? Oh, they don't do that. No, no. That's like, if you go to any university, just try it sometime. Go to any university, go into the chemistry department or the physics department. Ask the guys in the physics department a question about chemistry. I can tell you right now what they'll say. Oh, you need to go talk to those guys over there in the chemistry department. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though they might know, people don't step out of their lane in professional science. So since you've been you know, putting this together, how many scientists have you found that are interested in what you're doing? Oh, lots. Uh, we have scientists at Stanford, at Washington University, at Carnegie Science, MIT. We did a presentation at, at uh, the Boston Museum of Science and brought the house down. We lots and lots of scientists. I mean, we only have room for 125 on the boat. Mm-hmm. And I'll bet we have 1,200 that are interested in going. Here's a question I was thinking about. Now, when you talk about looking at the different magnetics there, I mean, could that be the case with something like, like, well, the 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 doesn't want to work. Bermuda Triangle. I mean, that maybe there's something way down in the core there. There's an opening somewhere there. Yeah, there's something to be said about ray lines and energetic spots on the Earth Uh where uh, you know things might overlay one another. But you have to understand the crust is about 900 miles thick, Uh and we've only drilled into it maybe eight, so we don't know much about the crust what we know about the crust we've learned from instruments like harp mm-hmm. harp is the high frequency active rural research program and it's used to uh, well there's two big aspects to it one is an, an ionospheric heater so it pushes the ionosphere out into space and reshapes it because of the marconi effect that they try to manipulate the marconi effect mm-hmm. but the main feature of harp is long-range, very high uh, power waves that penetrate the Earth. And when they go down into the Earth, they they reflect and they get distorted and bounce back. And we've learned to measure the backscatter of those waves. And we can actually look into the Earth about about 20 to 30,000 feet. Hmm. And we've learned a lot about our planet that way. The other thing I was thinking, too, I'm surprised that somebody hasn't thought of this like you have, because, you know, like you say, we're on tectonic plates as it is. So who's to say that somewhere along the line, even on the San Andreas Fault out here, that something hasn't opened up to allow for access to that area? It's too deep. Okay. The tectonic tectonic plates are way, 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 that's up in the, what we call the, you know, the upper crest. Uh Uh-huh. when you get down close to the interior of the Earth, close in, uh, you know, you're hundreds of miles below where the plates are. Uh, there's magma in between the plates and the inner crust. And uh, we don't know if it's honeycomb or if it's, you know, got voids in it. Mm-hmm. We know there are calderas, but even those only go a few miles deep. I mean, this, this just intrigues me beyond reason, this whole project. My gosh. Yeah, and I think it's, I think more, what we realize is when planets form, uh-huh. and this goes gets into astronomy because we don't really have 
We don't really have a long enough time observing space to actually know this. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is we've made educated guesses because um, we think we can see snapshots with the, with the instruments that we have, like the, the new uh, web telescope, right. and the Hubble telescope. We can see snapshots of space because we really haven't been looking at space that long. Mm-hmm. So we think that planets are made one of two ways. Either they come together in what are called accretion disks. These are big, huge, swirling clouds of gas in space. And over billions of years, they come together and they coalesce into into planets and solar systems and stars. I mean, it makes sense. We've got pictures of sort of that process taking place in space. But the other theory and this is one that's gaining a lot more popularity now, is the electromagnetic or the electric universe uh, viewpoint. And that is that these clouds do exist, but what happens is these amazing electrical discharges occur. And when the electrical discharges occur, it's like a lightning bolt going through this big old huge cloud of dust. And as it does, it forms planets and stars as it goes. And that we do have pictures of as well occurring. So if that's the case, it's highly likely that planets form as hollow spheres. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And like you say, this is a wonderful time to be alive for everybody because there's so much science coming out now. You know, things, like you say, things that we did, that we were taught, not wrong, but I mean, that's what they, what they thought back then. But it's all clarifying now, and it's, it's really exciting. I call it religiosity of it. <laughs> you know, where you get these guys that got their PhDs and now they're doctors in this uh, particular science, and they don't want it changed. You know, they want it to stay the way that they thought of it. Right. So I call it religiosity. They just they become like high priests of science, and anybody who disagrees with them is automatically wrong. And we're seeing a lot of that right now. We, mm-hmm. we see a lot of craziness in it. But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting time to be alive, but it's also a time we could be doing much, much better than we're doing right now. Right, right. So once you get this thing rolling, how long will it take to actually fit, physically get on the boat and then out there? It takes, you have to have it ready to go, all your money and all the names ready to go, the yeah. At the latest, the October of the year before you're going to go. So we're planning on going between June and the middle of August. That's the window that opens up. So that means that if we were going to go and say 2025, by October of 2024, we would have to have all our money and all the people together. And how long will it take to get there, depending on where you leave from? Me to get everybody on the boat. Well, I mean, once everybody's yeah, on the boat, how long is, is this the trip from whatever port you're leaving uh, from to get out there? It's, uh, it's 15 days. Okay. It's 15 days. So we would leave the monks and we would sail up. Uh, we would sail. We're going to skip Helsinki. There's no sense in sailing south to Helsinki, but we're going to sail to Ellesmere Island and then we're going to sail the grid that we're looking at. And it's, it means breaking ice. Right. For about seven to eight days. Hmm. That's incredible. That's incredible. Oh, it'll be an adventure. 
But it, it's not going to be a pleasure cruise. I mean, there will be people not uh, comfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel? Have you had anybody come out negatively against what you want to do? Um, not from the science point of view, but from the money point of view. Ah, okay. We've had a lot of people who were just, uh, you know, saying it's a big scam and all we're trying to do is raise money. Well, I would sure like them to take a look at my uh, bank account because I've put <laughs> well, pretty close to $100,000 into this project on my own. Um, now, once you get out there and you, and you, and you start using the probes and everything, Obviously, is the video going to be coming back to you, or are the probes just going to be recording it? It's going to be recorded, but it's also going to stream live. Right. We'll four channels live at all times. There'll be 12 cameras running, mm-hmm. and about 4,000 hours of film will be recorded in 15 days. And I'm sure a number of documentaries will be made from it. But we, what we really want is... These 12 cameras are going to be like roaming reporters all over the ship. Anything that's going on, if they're measuring seawater, they're measuring ice, they're looking at magnetometers, they're running the, the, uh, the uh, submersible off the side of the ship, or they're flying helicopters down under the ice, all that's going to be filmed all the time. And it won't all go smoothly. There'll be, there'll be people that are uncomfortable, that are mad, that are having... I mean, you get 125 scientists from all over the world on a boat. I guarantee there are going to be some conflicts. Absolutely. So we'll film it, and everybody will watch it, and what what happens, happens. Absolutely. So have you talked to anybody over in Russia at all about the uh, about getting an icebreaker yet, or is that oh, something yeah. you have to do? Oh, yeah. We've talked to them for well over a decade. They're excited about it. They want to do it. These are Russian waters, and it's a Russian ship. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah, they're definitely excited. They want to do it. I'm excited. I'd like to do it. That's pretty fun. You know, it's pretty fun. Like you say, hard work at the same time to look that in. But imagine being on the on the cutting edge if it is what you think it is down there. Well, there won't be any. Uh, well, there'll be about three hours of three to four hours of dusk per day. Mm-hmm. The, the sun will be up for fifteen days. So you just push as hard as you can for 15 days and get as much done as you possibly can. What about animals and fish and stuff? Because I know that the, the deeper you go with that, the uh, fish start, you know, the, the, the fish are completely different from what you see on the surface. Absolutely. So we're going to get samples of all of that, all the way down to plankton and uh, you know, other microorganisms. Uh, the uh, dart that we throw over the side of the boat, the darts that we have designed, you throw mm-hmm. them over the side of the boat, they basically fall to the bottom, plunge into the into the silt in the bottom and grab a, a, a core, and then a bag inflates, and it floats back to the surface. Cool. And it takes about five hours for this thing to make its, its uh, well, four to five hours for it to make its trip. So you throw it over the boat at noon, and you gather it back on the surface at three or four in the afternoon. You know, it's just a shame that we don't have the technology to take us to take a sub down there, because that would be oh, absolutely so fascinating. So, I mean, you could take us like a bathyscaphe down there, two guys in there, three guys in it, but you wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, 
you wouldn't be able to stream it because you'd have to wait till they got back to the surface and right. then you could look at the film. Right, right, right. Right. Well, I'm really excited for you with with this project. I think it's fantastic. Well, it's a big project and, and you know, trying to get you know, if we could reach our market, which our market is about forty million fans worldwide, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if we could actually reach them and say, Hey, you know, send us a dollar or send us fifty cents and we'll have all the money we need to get it done. But you can't you can't reach them. There, there's no there's no technology to reach the market like that. Right, 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 right. So what do you hope happens when you get there? Well, <laughs> we kind of tap into the little boy in me. I, I, there's a lot of stuff we have to be prepared for because there's no resupply ship. There's no extension cord. There's no like, hey, bring this out to us. We forgot this. So one of the aspects of this trip that we get, whether we're in Japan or whether I'm talking in Amsterdam or I've been to China six times. Um, one of the things that I get from people is, what about UFOs? What about yeah. you guys get out there and there's not a, another boat within 300 miles of you and no boat's ever been there before. And what happens if a UFO comes up? Well, we have a film crew, a two-man crew, just for that. And they'll be filming in visible light and infrared light at the same time. Nice. So if a ship comes up to see us, everybody's going to see it. That was going to be my next question, was about UFOs and stuff. You know, because they say there's a lot of bases under the water that we, we may not be aware of. Makes sense to me. I mean, we know UFOs exist. We know they fly around with impunity. Thank goodness they haven't brandished their weapons. But we don't know where they go. Mm-hmm. Where do they go when they're not flying around? You know, where do they? Where's their base? Yep, just makes a lot of sense. So, what's the message you have for people about your project? Well, never stop exploring. Never mm-hmm. get to a point in your mortality where you think you know it all, or you don't want to know anymore. Right. Right. Because I am an earth explorer and I like doing great things. And it's why maybe I was made for this expedition. And I have a great crew. I have a great crew. They're dedicated. They've worked so many years without any money and they're still dedicated and we're still trying to put this together. What do you think? Of, I know money is always a hurdle, you know, when it comes to projects like this. But other than money, what has been the biggest hurdle with this? There hasn't been. I mean, just the personal time you have to take off from your job, go to a, a conference and speak, or you know, go on History Channel or Discovery Channel, or mm-hmm. you know, go uh, speak to George Dory or somebody like that. You know, that's it's not a sacrifice, I guess, but it's that's the time-consuming part. Is all the time you have to go to keep pitching the project because if you ever stop pitching it. The project will never move. True, true. So here's my next question, because you, you, you're talking about Discovery Channel and those. Has there been any way to get them interested enough to maybe help fund you on this thing? Oh, no. no see, the, the thing most people uh, 
take for granted is the discovery and history of those guys. They have money. They don't. They're resellers. All they do is resell cable channel time. Okay. And so, like, Deadliest Catch cost about two to $3,000 an episode. This makes Deadliest Catch look like Little Home on the Prairie. Interesting. One day of this uh, expedition will cost over $250,000. One day. And we're out there for 15 days. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. This is so far beyond the scope. Now, Discovery has said, oh, you guys go shoot the film and bring it back, and then we'll let you put it on you know, our channel for right. a nominal fee. We have to pay them to put it on their channel. Uh, I said, no thanks. And we're talking to the vice president of Discovery Channel mm-hmm. in Silver Springs, Maryland. That's crazy. I never I never knew that. That you know that's yeah. how that's how they work. That's no, crazy. They, everything that goes on their channel, they get paid for. So how does your you know I mean your family feel about you doing all this research to go out and do this stuff. Are you kidding? They'll be on the bow, hanging over the side, <laughs> going, I'm on top of the world. Yeah, <laughs> my, my, my kids love this. That is awesome. I think I would, too. If I was your kid, I would love this, too. I, I think this, <laughs> this stuff just really, bought, really hits the imagination and the fact that, you know, like I said, I had all those science books as a kid, and so I'm a science nut to begin with, and just, just to hear how all the new theories are going on, especially this one. This is an impressive theory. Well, I read the story of Sir James Ross, you know, in 1831. He gets a ship and he says, I'm going to go find the, the North Magnetic Coal. Uh-huh. So he gets up there around San Ellsworth Island and he gets caught in the ice and the ice smashes his ship. So he bails, his whole crew bails, they get out on the ice, they pitch their tents, they winter. And then in the spring, a ship comes and rescues them. Right. Mm-hmm. So then <laughs> he raises the money, he gets another ship, and he does it again. Cool. And this time he finds the North Magnetic Pole. That's why he's in the encyclopedia as the discoverer of the North Magnetic Pole. See, I've been to his home. I've seen his uh, his bust in Stranraer, which is my hometown in Scotland. Uh, so he he is uh, he's a hero to us. I can imagine. So uh, what's next for your, your your attempt to do this? Uh, unfortunately, we just have to wait for this silliness in Ukraine to get over with. Because mm-hmm. we can't get, as soon as we mention Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker, mm-hmm. everybody runs out of the room. I can see that. I can understand. So again, it's like it's, it's almost like, like the elements are, are trying to keep you from doing this because I mean we, we had that other stuff happen <laughs> a couple years ago that. which stopped it and now and, and, and now this war is going on which is stopping it but you have a real positive attitude about it. Yeah, I I I mean if I said that the, their force is that big mm-hmm. in the universe marshaled against me, mm-hmm. I, I think I would, <laughs> it would be a moment of self-aggrandizement. I think that I can take on forces that grand. Because I'm going to do it. I will get it done. I believe you. I believe you. Do you find yourself, because you've done all this research into this already, do you find yourself always up, you know, with the antenna up, lo- lo- looking for something new that might come your way? Sure. Add to it? Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and, of course, we're, we're plagued with plagiarists. Oh, my goodness. You know, 
when we go sailing through the chum is something else. All the bottom feeders that, that uh, want to try to make money off our project, uh, yeah, it's it's quite disheartening to see. And we asked them to join us and to support us, but they never do it. They they want to they want to take advantage of all the work we've done for 15 years. Of course, you know when you go public with this, that's I mean that's the risk you take. Obviously, you know when you put stuff out oh, there, yeah. it's happened to me with with you know with, with my documentaries that I want to shoot and stuff, and people have ju- have jumped on you know ju- jumped on them before I have. Was it really a difficult choice to go public with it? I really had no choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless I can find some philanthropist billionaire who wants to make a mark for himself, but I don't know anybody like that. And and besides, you know, we went and spoke to Richard Branson because we thought this is right down his alley. He's a billionaire. He's an adventurer, you know. And what he said was, well, when you sign these papers, it becomes my project. And you guys are no longer involved. You understand that, right? Yeah, okay. So So we left. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense too, because that's it's his money. So yeah, I I see that. I I can see that. I think this would be more pure, mm-hmm. scientifically, ethically, if the actual public steps up and says, "We're giving the money because we want to see this happen." Absolutely, absolutely. So how are you trying to get the word out to get funding? Well, that's a good question. Of course, we've tried social media. That doesn't work. We've mm-hmm. tried radio over the years. That works. We do reach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said, the actual instruments, financial instruments for putting something like this together haven't existed for very long. Right. And they have never been applied to a project like this before. Mm-hmm. They're called SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition Companies. They're, they're, they're complex uh methods of raising money on top of money on top of money mm-hmm. and of course you end up raising about 10 times 20 times more money than you actually need because all the people in the stack are also taking payoffs okay while they put it together that makes sense and it used to be called the ponzi scheme but now it's called the SPAC. <laughs> so uh the only other way to do it is to is to do a grassroots you know Radio shows like yours. Sure. A few thousand people here, a few thousand people there. And next thing you know, it goes viral. Somebody does a TikTok video. And, yeah. You know, it gets 20 million views. And, well, we'll get there. I mean, I've seen people, you know, do their business startups with GoFundMe. I mean, is that an um, option? Yeah. If you're going to do GoFundMe, you need 60 grand. 30 grand for the first campaign and the 30 grand for the follow up campaign. Okay. And and then you can get, you know, five, six, ten million email addresses. But you come in there like we have about eighteen thousand email addresses in our mm-hmm. database. Mm-hmm. That's not enough. Mm-hmm. You need at least at least eight hundred thousand email addresses to even get started on something like that. I never knew that either. See, I'm learning things for me today. I'm learning all kinds yeah, of stuff go, for me today. GoFundMe is not GoFundMe is basically a money laundering operation. Okay. So, whether it's family members or whether it's political candidates or whatever, it's a way of funneling money from one source to another, and the original source is not always legal. Absolutely. 
So here's my last question for you. I'll let you go for the evening. You're standing on, I don't know if I asked you this before last time, the last couple times, you're standing on the strip in Las Vegas and there's your project that you want to do and there's a couple other guys that have similar projects. How do you get people to come in and, and, and sign on to your project? Well, you know, hopefully we can convince them to join forces with us. Mm -hmm. And if they don't join forces with us, then they become competitors. And competition is always good for everybody, okay. especially for the consumer. Okay, fair enough. How do people find you? Easy. It's just brooksagnew.com. Brooksagnew.com, all one word. Everything is linked to there. My radio programs, my books. Uh, my consulting business, all my space research, everything is there. Fantastic. Brooks, I wish you all the best of luck with this. Well, thank you. It sounds like I a really fantastic project. Well, I would love to get you back on later on and talk about more stuff. I mean, you're, you're, you're like a walking science encyclopedia. It's fun. Uh, that's what they tell me. But, you know, <laughs> life is only so long, so you've got to be about Stuff done. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Brooks, and enjoy the rest of your evening. And we'll, we'll definitely be in touch. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Bye bye. All right. I learned a lot here. Let's get my face back here. Wow, that was pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Imagine if he's able to actually. Let me move my phone here. Because you know what will happen. The phone will go flying, and you guys don't want to hear a flurry of foul language. Um. Imagine if he he's actually able to do that, and it's it's just it's incredible. It's an incredible thought, you know. Tomorrow uh, we're back with uh, hang on, let me, oh now you can hear that really bad. See the echo wasn't too bad during this time. Yesterday the last time I did it was bad, so I'm kind of narrowing it down. Tomorrow Nancy Matz is here. We're going to be having one of our favorite chat, you know, an, an, another great chat. So that'll be fun, you know. Colors feng shui feng shui right? I I did my house feng shui, and. Uh, I raised some eyebrows, but <laughs> I did I combined greens. I didn't do red though. I I combined greens and black and, and white, you know, to do different color stuff in my house, color, color themes. But anyway, um, thanks everybody. That's great, and uh, that was a great conversation with him. And and if you have any other questions for him or anything you'd like to ask him, just let me know. Or maybe we can get him on over at the Patreon site to answer additional questions about this. I just think what he's doing is cutting edge and, and fascinating. That's why I wanted to have him on. Okay, getting back to our websites now. We were talking about how to find California haunts, which is cool. And and there's a few places. There's here on there's Facebook, right? And if you Google in California haunts, you're going to see three or four pages come up off of that. There's my personal Facebook page. There's Instagram, and that's Ghosty Gal, all lowercase. You can get us there. You can get us over at TikTok under California haunts. Maybe California haunts radio too over there. We'll, I, I'm trying to put something together for that and twitter of course it's cal haunts and i believe it's cal haunts on twitch as well i'll have to double check that but those are ways to get a hold of us or youtube our youtube uh, our moniker is youtube.com at california haunts okay so it's really simple really really simple i think it is right I, because you know i've been telling you guys wrong <laughs> all this time so i do believe it's youtube at cal youtube.com at california haunts California Haunts Radio. I'm sorry. Yes. California Haunts Radio. Somebody just reminded me. So that's the that's the ways to find us. And again, if you if you like what you heard today, please uh please uh, show me some love, give me some thumbs up, some hearts or 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 whatever because uh the, the more of those we get, the 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 better off we are in the algorithm. 
you know, as far as YouTube and TikTok and all these other places go. We're hoping to get the technology soon to be able to go live on TikTok as well with these shows. So I'm working on it, you know, little by little. And once I get this, this laptop thing set up the way I want to in here, I should be able to do that. But I just haven't got that far yet. But I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. I really appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, everybody out there in what I call Radio Land with the, with the RSS feed, like a lot like Apple and all the different places that the, that, that the show plays, iHeartRadio, you know, places like that. But uh, I really appreciate each and every one of you and the people that have donated. I appreciate you also. I mean, we couldn't do it with a, without your help, you know, to, to keep this thing on the air. And, 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 and it's, it's fantastic, the support that, that we've gotten. And I didn't think we would be on the air this long, you know, because it's like any other thing. When you plan and when people don't realize, like when you're self-employed, you're always working for the next month to make sure you can pay the bills the next month. So you're always working a month ahead. So that's that's how we that's how we work to raise our funds and everything. So I want to thank you all. Okay. And as you can see with the ticker on the bottom, uh, if, if you if you could help us out a little bit, that'd be great to keep this thing on the air. And you can do that at PayPal.me. I think I think the PayPal was wrong too. Something with the PayPal that was messed up. PayPal me at, Cal at California Haunts. I don't think there's a dot in there. I'll have to fix that too. There's a lot of things that I, I had on there. Or, or you can do it at Venmo and just type in California Haunts. Oh, that's what it is. PayPal.me forward slash California Haunts. I think I made the change on it. Okay. That being said, I need to eat something. I've been living on chocolate all day. Not good, but it helped me get through everything. But thank you all for coming tonight and. I will give you Brooks' information so you can check out. He's got like five or six, seven books out. So uh, you might want to check that out, you know, over at Amazon or, or whatever bookseller you use. But uh, it's been a fascinating night, and I hope you got some some good information out of it as far as his project and everything. Okay? So here we go. Let me set you up with Brooks. Do, do, do. Button. Who's got the button? There it is. So the websites are x2-radio.com, Alien Nation. AlienatedNation.com, ArcOfMillionsOfYears.com, EV-Fleet. Oh, that was quick. Okay, I got through the, the majority of them. <laughs> and he's got the books like he talked about, the you know the Ark of Millions series. So he's got those books out. Plus he's got um, Remembering the Future out. And there's, and there's still books more than that. But if you check out Amazon or check out his website, you'll see all these great books. Okay? Okay. So... I'm glad you guys came. I got to get back to work in the studio, but uh, thank you for coming and I'll see you tomorrow at 6.30 PM Pacific with medium Nancy Mats. <laughs>